being performance director, it essentially means that you're responsible for everything that touches the athlete um, away from the sport. Okay. Right? So, of course, it bleeds onto the field um, a ton with, you know, the, the conditioning, the preparedness for the game and all that sort of stuff. Um, so we, we'd start everything from um, rehab, medical care. Um, we, we brought in a, a new hospital group last year. And so, you know, onboarding physicians and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, all of the nutrition, um, the, the sort of extended rehab, uh, all of the injury prevention. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has his PhD in human performance. Uh, he's worked in a number of sports across the neuro leagues, including the NCAA, the NBA, the NHL, recently in MLS at NYCFC, where he was the performance director. Currently, he's a director of performance science at North Star Welcome to the show, Dr. Jeremy Bennell. Jesse, thanks a lot for having me on, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thanks for joining me. Um, so if you're just listening to the audio version, you're missing that Jeremy's still got his NYCFC hat on, which <laughs> still had, I known, had I known, seen, I, now I've got this temptation to run in my other, run in the other uh, room and grab my, actually it's a Wizards hat from my 2007 season oh. ticket holders. So I right. haven't updated to the sporting cap, but um <laughs> They're obviously having a real tough year this year, so I we'll, we'll pass that conversation. Right, right. <laughs> um, but I didn't know. So when I was getting ready uh, to talk with you uh, earlier in the week, I, I caught the just kind of by happen chance. I saw it, it was on. Um, I was at my folks' house. I don't have cable, so I was at my folks' house, and I said, "Well, the NYC UFC Philadelphia match was on," mm-hmm. and I would kind of cut the last twenty minutes of it, which was pretty contentious. Did you? Did you watch the match? Did you did you miss out on that one since you're not with the club anymore? Yeah, it's it's really interesting now that I don't have to watch these games. Um, <laughs> I, I tend to catch the first half. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I missed the the contentious ending. So it, yeah, that's all we got, which I was like, yeah. I guess if you're gonna watch a match that's not your like not your own club, then yeah, like this is this is the meat right here. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to give you a hard time. And, you know, so if you're the performance director, I, I wanted to ask, are you the one teaching them to fall on the ground when they didn't actually get fouled? Or like, what, what is your job? Uh, what yeah, we, you we, dedicate, uh, we dedicate a significant amount of practice to that. <laughs> yeah. Like choreographing the whole thing. Yeah, right. it's, yeah a very important part the of the game. The timing is crucial because if you don't get Critical. it right, then it's clear that it was Critical. You know, fake. Yeah. And then, then you get a yeah. card and that's a whole problem. Yeah. It, you know what it was actually one of the biggest challenges going from a sport like hockey and then going right into football of like you, you see a guy get fouled and you're like oh my god he might be dead like he might not make it oh 
oh no, he's fine. <laughs> like, he's completely fine. He's, he's, he's completely back. fine. He's running at yeah. full speed down the pitch. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. no problem. No problem at all. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it did take me a, a while to control my impulse to, to sort of like, oh God, and, and go into full panic mode. So yeah, it's funny. That's the tough thing. I think about anybody who's not really been watching football or soccer, depending on which country you're from, um, for any period of time is like, and I think a fair criticism uh, is like, is the dives. Cause mm-hmm. if, you know, in hockey, it's like, well, okay, we're going to go like duke it out here for a minute and then we'll get back. <laughs> right. Get like, right back to it. Yeah. Right. Which, you know, you don't, I don't think you really want to start fist fights in the middle of the pitch. So I don't know that that's the way to go. Um, yeah. It seems like there's an in-between though, right? <laughs> there's, there's, like, there's, yeah, yeah. Kinda... there's gotta be some point sort of middle ground. <laughs> Yeah, it, it just, I, I, it's tough. It's also tough too, because I've seen, like, uh, I don't, you know, I come from a running background. I yeah. played soccer as a little kid, but not to any competitive degree as I got older. Um, but I also come from a martial arts background. So, like, my instinct is to be, like, just, like, if somebody's trying to foul you or, like, you know, you know, like strategic fouls or they're pulling your jersey and they know it's going to be a strategic yellow or whatever. Instead of going down, just like fight through it and continue to play mm-hmm, forward. Mm-hmm. Like that's my instinct. But I also know watching matches that like sometimes refs miss stuff. So I'm like, is that the argument yeah. for, you know, kind of embellishing that, oh, he hit you, he hit me here, he, he ran into me. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a big part of that where it's like there's some of it where, yes, you want to make sure that that foul gets detected. Um, there's another part of, you could fight through that, but you might not be in a great attacking position if you do. And so creating a set piece, which is where a, a ton of goals, especially in the MLS, ton of goals come off that set piece. And so there's creating a better attacking platform, you know, in, in certain parts of the field, you know, right. so there's, there's sort of a, a justification each way. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're back in your own third, like, it's not, it's like, yeah. you, you, it's a, you're probably not going to chip the keeper at that point. I mean, <laughs> it's you happened, but yeah, yeah. The, the statistics are probably not on your side at that point. But, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's still, depending on who's where and what's happening, can sometimes give you a chance to reset. Obviously, yeah, it gives exactly. the other team a chance to reset, too, but um, depending on what you need strategically. Mm-hmm. Um so now the question really is, what what did you actually do for the club? What, like, what, what, what were you working with yeah. them on? Yeah, so being performance director, it essentially means that you're responsible for everything that touches the athlete um, away from the sport. Okay. Right? So, of course, it bleeds onto the field um, a ton with, you know, the, the conditioning, the preparedness for the game and all that sort of stuff. Um, so we'd start everything from, um rehab medical care um we we brought in a, a new hospital group last year so you know onboarding physicians and and all that sort of stuff um all of the nutrition um the the sort of extended rehab uh, all of the injury prevention uh through strength and conditioning the sports science um all of the technology and then sort of my job is is basically complex problem solving (laughs) so how do we leverage that multidisciplinary team make it one department 
and and solve a problem with a, a lot of cognitive diversity versus me or the physio or the strength coach trying to solve that problem alone. So I guess if I'm I'm trying to truncate that, are you are you like I'll call you like a director of operations in, in a sense of <laughs> yeah. like of like yeah. athletic performance that isn't yeah. directly impacted by like coach running practice and that kind of thing. Like everything else, the, the ecosystem that surrounds yeah. the athletes. Yeah, exactly. And so it's we will be in the room with the coaches to help plan practice and and sort of curate the the training load to optimize for for game day make sure everybody's in a good position for game day um and, and so it, it that's where it sort of bleeds into the technical tactical stuff um but as far as what the drills are and and all that sort of stuff like the football is is down to obviously the coaches still um but then it sort of extends into the scouting realm it extends into you know, any, any trades that might be happening, any new acquisitions that might be coming in. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a pretty comprehensive role overall. Um, but that's where you just got to have an excellent team of people who manage sort of the day to day. I mean, as you're describing it, I kind of feel like I missed out on a, a, a career calling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Cause obviously like, you know, my company's involved in sport and I I'm an entrepreneur. So I like complex mm -hmm. problem solving and, just the whole thing, you know, it, it speaks a lot to like the raw skills. I like the things that yes. I kind of gravitate towards. Yeah. So um, I think that begs the question for me. Uh, number one, did you even know that this kind of thing existed as you were going through school? Was this the, the goal from the outset or, or how did you find yourself kind of winding into these yeah. career positions? It, it really didn't exist when I was going through school. Um, so coming out, I was a rugby player growing up, um, always into sport, always fit. Um, physics took over a little bit in rugby. You know, I stopped growing and the other guys didn't. Yeah. Uh, so you, you're going to lose out in some of those battles. Yeah. Uh, so I, I know I wanted to stay involved in sport. And that's usually, you know, people generally sort of size out of rugby and become strength coaches. Um, and so that's, that's where I went, um, studied exercise science, but rugby had only really turned professional in about 1995. And so again, really coming out of late nineties, early two thousands, when I graduated with my undergrad that you were just seeing the first sort of full-time strength coaches coming into sport. Football had always had fitness coaches, you know, but it was just another assistant coach who would run the players. You know, it wasn't necessarily somebody with an academic background, you know, in, in how to prepare players. So that's where I sort of got a little bit lost coming out of my undergrad I was working in a gym, doing personal training and, and just sort of thought, you know, what, there's got to be more to this. Um, that's when I made the move over to the States. I was going to stay for a year to do my master's and that was almost 20 years ago now. So got sort of <laughs> sucked into the sidetracked a little bit yeah a little bit derailed <laughs> on, on the plans there um <clears throat> so when you come over to the states from the uk the the professionalism of the sports in terms of like having a staff of people who take care of the athletes you know every team had a strength coach i went to middle tennessee state 
um, an unbelievable strength and conditioning program. And, it, and it's not a big football school, mm-hmm. you know? And so like walking into a weight room like that, you, you've never seen anything like it in the UK. And that's when you start being like, oh, okay, okay. That there are jobs that you can do around sport and be involved. And, and so that's where I really started focusing in on, on becoming a full-time strength coach. And then as through my playing career, I always sort of had to piece those service elements together, you know, whether it's a massage therapist over here and osteopath over here and doing my own fitness uh, training and strength conditioning and always looking to sort of complete the, the services like the, the full spectrum. And then going into sport, you start seeing those same gaps as a strength coach, you start seeing like where there are gaps with the medical services, where there are gaps in the scientific approaches. And so as I progressed through my career, I started just documenting and looking at systems and and trying to build that system in my mind and then gradually work towards, you know, you you get better in strength conditioning, you get promoted and you keep going. Um, And so it was really just about getting the opportunity to implement that system that I had sort of curated in my head with a backdrop of, you know, Olympic sport in the UK and, and, you know, the collaborative approach to um, sort of taking care of athletes. You've got that in the back of your mind and now you can get to apply it in a different setting. It, it was just really fortuitous timing because that's when um, that those first wave of, of sort of foreign practitioners were coming into the sports in, in the US. Uh, it's always been a very closed shop because they don't compete against anyone else. Um, so it was just, it was good timing to be coming in and getting into the, that's bringing sports science into clubs and developing a, a multidisciplinary approach to things. Um, and was very fortunate to be one of the first people on this side of the, the Atlantic doing that. So then it, I'm thinking about the timing and then I don't know exactly the timing you moved between um, sports and leagues and, and teams. Um, for your whole career, but uh, as you're developing this kind of, I guess I'll call it like a package service almost, Mm -hmm. you know, um, a curator of everything that might ail an athlete. Right. um, Does that, does that lend you to basically like pitching yourself as a new job? Like, or, or, or are you, or are you applying for things that are already there? And then you're like, Oh, I can also bring all of these other skills to this position. Yeah, it was it was an element of both, you know, going into the college setting for the first time at UCSB was a, a great opportunity to to start trying all of that stuff because it was a it, it's a division one school, but it's a small division one school. And so they were, you know, just starving for anything that you could give them. Right. And so we, we put in as, as comprehensive a program as possible as we could there. And then transitioning to the nets, you go in as a strength coach. They now have the resources, number one, um, but also, you know, some of the willingness to, to try some of these other things. So that was one of those areas where it's like, OK, I will also be the sports scientist. I'll also be the nutritionist and start because I'm on more of the, the athletic performance side, I'll start building out this side of it in as comprehensive a way as possible. And you start talking to management about, 
systematic ways that we can manage the athletes better and, and bleeding into medical a little bit more. Um, and as I was talking to my colleagues around the league about, you know, this model that I was putting together, they started, um, one of those in particular, Alex McKechnie up in Toronto, you know, that was the sort of the model he had put together there. The Maple Leafs started showing interest in what he was doing because they have the same ownership group. Um, and then he uh, put my name forward when they were looking for a performance director there. So it sort of evolved from where those jobs really didn't exist. So then this was the first one that was being created in the NHL. Um, I was one of five people to interview for that role and was, was very fortunate to get the job, uh, certainly as a non-hockey person. Mm -hmm. um, so it, yeah, it was a, a progression from try everything you can, bring a little bit more than your role demands of you to, okay, now you're actually applying for this as a job. So talk to me about um, moving between sports um, because I know a lot of people tend to stay in their own lane, right? They grow yes. up, they grow up as a hockey player. They stick, they stay in hockey. I mean, <clears> I've, I've talked to a couple people over the, of the years here. I'm, you know, 150 some odd episodes in a couple people who have, ah, uh, you know, I was a swimmer and now I do this, or I am forgetting her name right now. Um, she was a rower and now she, uh, consults with like USA bobsled mm -hmm. and, and there is some connection there somehow, although it escapes me at the moment. Um, but I mean, you've done an even more diverse spread yeah. of sports, obviously, um, or maybe not, obviously not that I'm aware of. I don't think we have pro rugby in the U S maybe it's, it's growing and I'm just not aware of it, but yeah, they, they've just got their first league. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I live in a little bubble. So I was like, maybe it's happening and I just don't see it. I see highlights of stuff from overseas yeah. uh, pop up here and there. Um, but obviously if you've got a rugby background and you're going NHL, the MLS, working in the NBA, like not the same sport at all. Right. So are there transferable skills where you go, okay, I know, you know, I know how to play rugby and then these, I guess I'll say esoteric skills a little bit like, you relate how the game plays to how a different game plays. Is, is it that, or are you just simply like starting from the ground, ground up? Yeah. I think, um, I think everybody within a sport thinks it's a lot more unique than it is. Okay. Um, and there are, there are people who are, are very specialized in that area. So, and that they're your sports coaches. So it would be difficult for a hockey coach to go and coach in the NBA. Right, that essentially, if you want to be a, a professional hockey coach, you're getting one of the 30 jobs that are available in the NHL. And you, you're pretty trapped in that market. As a practitioner, we tend to mentally con constrain ourselves in, in a similar way. But I think what we must look at is that our skill sets are just dealing with the human body and not in the human body as it relates to that sport. So we have a very transferable skill set in terms of preparing an athlete. You have to be able to identify the key demands of that sport, the key biomechanical actions, um, and then know how to connect all of that and prepare the athlete for and train them for the demands of their sport. So 
it's very transferable in that regard. What changes are the, the cultural, political, um, and personnel landscapes. And so that's where it, it's a very hard thing to do moving between sports and requires um, quite a lot of, of the softer skills. You have to be able to go in and, and accept that new culture and, and see what's good about it and see what you can bring to it, you know, versus come in and be like, okay, we're just going to bring soccer over here and drop it on hockey. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's just not going to work. So, yeah, to answer your question, it, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, first and foremost, because, you, you know, like you go from basketball and walk into one of the biggest sporting clubs in the world in the Maple Leafs. Um, but I think once you get over that, you know, you just start doing your job, start training athletes. Um, and they're all, they're all about the same once you've done it enough times, once you've gone between them. <laughs> I mean, I would think they all, you know, they all would be, I don't know, I, I've never been to pro um, locker room. So I, I'm obviously just talking out of my ass here with conjecture, but I would think that, I mean, they all want to win, right? Like they've worked mm -hmm. hard enough to become pros and right. Um, thinking about uh, talking about, I'll say political differences. We're talking about like, jockeying within the organization not like governmental politics right um is that i would think that even like say i don't know how a guy since i've not been inside the locker room i don't know how it operates but i would think even say you know if you came from nycfc to came came to kansas city and were working for sporting i would think that just based on like how peter Vermees runs things is going to be different from how mm -hmm. we see see it runs things versus you know like the the politics of the organization even within the same sport it seems yeah. like that would be you know its own yeah. challenge let alone yeah. jumping into a new sport and doing yeah. the whole thing over again yeah and that, that's where i think you can you can get tripped up a little more is for me at least is going within the same sport because you you sort of assume or you know you can make the assumptions that they're sort of going to be very very similar but you know the the political landscape between two clubs can be so vastly different and the just how people approach caring for the athletes day-to-day -day life you know it just can be so different and so you can trip up a bit thinking oh we're just going to take this model and put it here when you when you change sport you sort of know that it's going to be really different. So you're all, you're on your toes a little bit and you know, you've got to be watching out and, um, and just, I, I think you've got to approach these with a high degree of humility. And, and that's where, you know, the skepticism you're going to get from coaches and players as a non name the sport guy. Um, if you approach it with humility and, you know, with, with a, a sort of appreciative inquiry approach where you're, you're trying to find out what's good and you're trying to learn and they know you, you're trying to learn and you're there to offer what you know about and not tell them what they know about. Um, I think that's where you can be successful. Um, but it's, it's just recognizing that you got to do that between every club, not just every sport. It makes me wonder about since, as you described yourself, um, if, if you're transferring sports, you're, not insert sport guy, right? Didn't come from that sport background. Right. It makes me wonder 
um, if over time, whether you've hit this landmark yet or whether maybe it's coming in the future, I see two potential, hopefully the more positive one, two potential labels for you. One, um, that's no longer a question. It's like, no, he's worked in all these leagues. Like this guy's got the goods or like, why has he worked in all these leagues? Mm-hmm. Does he have the goods? You know, yeah. do, do you encounter either of those? Yeah, both. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting because in North America, you, you get one of these jobs and you keep it for life, mm-hmm. right? You know, you're the athletic trainer who's been with, with an NFL team for 25 years. Right. Right. Europe, it, you, you sort of move around a little more, you know, it, it, there's sort of a four to five year span and people move on and try something else and, and move around a little more. So my mindset is a little bit more in that regard, you know, like I like new challenges. I like fresh environments. Um, and so there's a little bit of an element of that where culturally, you know, that that's a bit unusual. Um, and then the, the being the sports guy, it usually follows one sport behind you. Right? So going into basketball, you know, you're a rugby guy going into hockey. Now you're a basketball guy coming out of into football. Now you're a hockey guy, right? So it's, you're never the guy until you leave and go and do something <laughs> else. Right. So like now I'm a hockey guy. Thanks. <laughs> I feel like that's going to be, if you've got a good sense of humor, not frustrating. If you don't, probably pretty frustrating. But then I think like you, since you've seen it a number of times, you're just like, yep, like this is just yep, what it I'm, is. Sure, I'm the hockey guy now. That's, yeah, I'm the that's hockey me. guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Makes for a good story on a podcast. <laughs> Do you walk in? I mean, you walk in the locker room, just, they're like, oh, it's the hockey guy. You're like, I've never, you know, I've never laced up skates and been on the ice or yeah, you're just like, you yeah, don't want to see me on me. the ice. Yeah. <laughs> um, before I forget about it, because I made this note earlier, I wanted to ask you about your, uh, so backing up, thinking about MLS, NYCFC, developing this kind of suite of services. Um, were you or your kind of, I saw colleagues around the league involved in implementing the, the, the trackers that the players wear now? Because that's been in the last couple of years that, um, mm-hmm. so if you don't watch uh, MLS, all the what players basically wear trackers to figure out like how, many, how much ground they're covering each game, their speeds, all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Were you involved in that? Yeah, yeah. So that's all the data that we, we collect. We the training load data so we'll collect that during practice and during games and it's essentially it allows us to make sure that we're optimally preparing the athlete first of all it tells us what the demands of the game are what velocities are they going to have to move at how far are they going to have to run how many sprints all this sort of stuff um and then it allows us to plan the week so we're challenging them enough to make sure they're prepared but we're not over challenging them close to the game to where they're now fatigued Right. So it, it's trying to strike that balance and making sure, you know, you, you can't over recover athletes, right. To where all you do is recover because right. you, you have to push in and actually get in shape at some point right. and have something to recover from. But, you know, at the same time, you know, if, if you've got three games in a week, you know, you need to know where to push and where not to. Right. And so, so it's balancing that on a day to day, week to week, and then on a season long, journey to make sure that 
they're, they're still able to function at the end of playoffs um, after a long season. I definitely noticed like one of the thing, uh, you know, this season aside injuries, one of the things uh, sporting always had trouble with is I, I think because of Peter's like high press personality and the way he wants to play the players hard up front, we would end up like the wheels would fall off late in the season. And it seems like that's, they've done a little bit better job since the trackers have been involved with rotating players out, getting more rest, like doing all those kind of things to not basically injure everybody by the end of the season. Um, so for, for you personally, when you're looking at the data and trying to figure out this load optimization, this is something I've thought about a lot over the years as an injury prone athlete. Um, I don't know how many times I was injured during collegiate athletics um, from overload. Again, as a distance runner, uh, it's a problem we face all the time since our sport is literally a performance mm -hmm. against the clock. Um, are you taking that data and making like individual optimizations where you go like, you know, oh, okay, we know um, like our defenders maybe aren't going to be putting in as much since they're not pressing up or like the midfielders are going to be doing the majority of the running so that, you know, we know that they're at this certain load or even beyond that, just this player tends to break down at more than such and such load during mm -hmm. the week. Are, are you getting that granular when you're going into that information? Yeah, even down to the, the number of sprints the guy is doing. Okay. Um, you know, you'll you'll see, you know, our sports scientist, um, Luke Cooper with, with New York, you'll see him after the game with the guys on the field, you know, and, and guys who play below a certain number of minutes doing top-up sprints to make sure that we're getting enough load into those guys. And then we're not getting too much load into the, the starters who are playing 90 plus minutes. All right. And so it, it's really important to, first of all, I, I always say that we're a football club and not a sports science club. So we, we try and impact as little as possible on the, the core parts of practice and, and competition. But there's this, the elements around those where we can start manipulating load for players, making sure guys get more or less, uh, you know, they, they don't need the individual, they might need to do some extra sprints. Um, when necessary, we might suggest that a guy doesn't participate in a certain drill because of the type of activity they'd be doing. But it, it's very, very individualized. And that goes all the way down, not just to how much they've done on the pitch, but we also collect data um, off the pitch on, on strength levels, um, recovery levels, all these other factors that feed into what makes them susceptible to injury from the load, not identifying the load as the problem on its own. So one of the things that I have, and, and because you guys have so much data, it may not be even a, a question anymore, um, is that my kind of most reliable indicator is, again, somebody who did not quite make it to the professional level in his sport, um, is that like, I always relied heavily on rate of perceived exertion. Mm -hmm. um, and I know when I talked to uh, Dr. Matt Jordan, who's, uh, he works for the Canadian equivalent of the US mm -hmm. Olympic Training Center. Um, I can't remember what, what their training center is called. You know, he's working on many of these similar kind of things where it's mm -hmm. like, 
how do we load certain athletes in certain ways and how to quantify it and figure out all these things. And I remember talking to him about like RPE often ends up being um, still a very highly correlated measure where you go, if the athlete says they need recovery, then they probably do. Does that also get taken into account, you know, with your system or, or have, you know, NYCFC tries to load the players where they, if, if you get an indication from somebody like, ah, you know, like, you know, like getting a little like, like irritation in my, my hamstring or whatever, do you, do you continue with the program or, or do you make adjustments based on that like qualitative measure? Yeah, no, that the thing that we mustn't ever lose sight of in, in sports science, as we're collecting more and more data is the fact that we're still dealing with humans. Right. And if you want to know if something was hard or if somebody's tired, you should probably ask them. Right. The, the data is there. The, the, the objective data is there to guide and inform decision making. Right. It, it's not the other way around. It doesn't we don't follow the data. You know, it, it follows and supports us. Um, sometimes you need a guy to just push. Right. And so the data says they probably shouldn't. But you're probably not going to hurt anyone by doing it. Um, you make those calculated decisions because you've got the information to give you the confidence in your decision making. Right. And so the, these are important things to recognize. But like when it comes to coaches, right, just because they're not measuring stuff with the technology that we have doesn't mean that coach is good. That intuition is not data. Right. If you've seen things happen a million times, it's valuable data. You can probably predict relatively closely what's going to happen next. All right. And so you go through these scenarios and build this, this vast database in your mind. We must respect that. And I've always approached coaches in a way, and, and especially introducing new data systems. Like here is another piece of information to help you make a decision. Right. And same with the athlete. Like, our load data says you haven't done enough. You're telling me your hamstrings are sore. I'm going to believe you. You know, I, I just think that, that that's the critical piece in implementing sports science. Um, that we must always sort of keep that connection with it is the human element. I think that's really, um, I guess, reassuring to hear. Um, and it may be because I, I deal much more with amateurs. Um, asking me questions and that kind of thing. I mean, I have friends that are, as we mentioned before we were recording, um, you know, high level uh, amateurs, um, some pros, some retired pros that I know, uh, but, but by and large, the people that kind of interact with me are, are amateurs. And it just seems like there's this mindset of getting too obsessed with the data and letting the data rule all. Yeah. And so I guess what, because I've you know, been doing my own thing for 20 some odd years now, I'm relatively in tune with being able to marry those two things. Mm -hmm. But I struggle with trying to figure out a reliable system, I guess, to communicate to people that want to use the data, let's say have less than five years experience in yeah. you know, competing on their own as an amateur and whatever. Um, do you have good mental strategies or systems or something that you would suggest to people that are, are just 
kind of getting their feet wet? Yeah, I, I think um, the good thing is, is to sort of give the data the, the sort of bullshit check. You know, when you wake up and your whoop says you're, you feel like shit and, and don't do anything, but you feel great. Like just because the, the whoop man says that, you know, it, it's not necessarily the most accurate piece of information, right? Or, or, or if it's the other way around. Right, like you, you have to follow how you're feeling, and and initially when you start trying a, a new piece of technology, use it to confirm what you're feeling. Like do a do a self inventory. If you do your meditation, you do your your body check in. Like follow that, and then compare that to the objective data, and you'll find data sources that are highly reliable and, and have a high confidence interval. And those are the ones you go with because then they will be sensitive to change. And, it, and if they track with how you're feeling, then you can start trusting them more and more. But I think the error that, that you can make, and I certainly did this as a young practitioner, is, is putting so much in the, this technology and this new stuff that was coming. And we need to follow this and we need to you know, fly at this time because our sleep tracker says we need to do that. And you get so wrapped up in that that you forget that a guy might want to fly home because it's his daughter's birthday, right? And maybe that outweighs the extra hour of sleep you get, mm -hmm. you know? And so that there are little things that, that I think, again, it, it's, just, it's just that check-in. But if you don't have the self-awareness first to know, okay, I feel like crap this morning, or wow, I feel great this morning, then, then don't rely on, on the whoop or the aura or the, the Garmin or whatever else it might be. You know, just, I, I think the more trust you have in yourself, but again, you, you said it, it's, it's experience and, and reps and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to think you can push and you're going to hurt yourself and that's okay. <laughs> I, I just, you'll work through it and, and you learn, you know, I, I think that method's great because I, what I basically find myself feeling like the old man shouting into the void, <laughs> even though yeah. I'm not, I'm not particularly old, I'm early thirties, but I just go, I just, because the, and I've talked to, uh, on the podcast, I've talked to people that have said all the trackers are, are bull. And then I've also talked to somebody who has a company that has a tra tracker. Yeah. And so it, it I, I think my trouble is that the the tracker is only good as good as number one the data that's being fed the data that's been fed historically and the algorithm that's been developed for it so if there are outside influences that aren't being tracked or haven't been tracked historically aren't being factored in or can't be factored in to the algorithm then I think you're, you're, as I think you mentioned, like a confidence interval, I think that gets downgraded because as you mentioned, there's parts of the human experience mm -hmm. that are being tracked, like right. your daughter's birthday. Like you probably want to get back for that, you know? Yeah. And so that's where it's like, I, I know it's valuable, but that's where I struggle with it. So I, I, I appreciate the, the kind of gut check idea yeah. about trying to, trying to, see how they correlate and going with there. I think that's a 
a pretty yeah. no-nonsense approach to it. But, and the thing is, there are so many new trackers and wearables now mm -hmm. that it's difficult. Like I have a PhD in human performance and I can't keep up with, you know, I, I can't read all of the papers that may or, or may not have been published on the, this latest Fitbit, mm -hmm. right? And so it can be difficult. And I think when I'm bringing something into a sports team, okay, then I'm going to dig in and I'm going to know exactly how accurate this, this bit of technology is. But if it's something that I'm going to wear for myself, I just need to compare it. It's an N of one. I just need to compare it on how this works for me um, and, and use it as a guide. You know, like maybe you should throttle back a little bit. Maybe you can push a little harder. Um, you know, and that, that's sort of one of the, one of the reasons for now leaving sport is having enough of that experience and, and wanting to now go and sort of democratize that experience a little bit and be able to help a wider group of people. And, and with Northside, we're, we're trying to solve that problem a little bit in that we've got so much data now and it's overwhelming, right? And it takes so long to sort of look through it all and understand it that we're, we're creating sort of that, almost that business intelligence layer. Um, so it's, it's gonna be a, a, a system that brings all of that into an AI model um, that's expert informed by myself and others to start getting some actionable insights. So how does your aura compare with your Garmin, compare with your Whoop, and then what do I do about it is the next thing, all right? Because that's what we're really starving for is, is the insight in these this data isn't there. We, we're just collecting massive databases of, of data, both at the team and the individual level. And so we need to solve that problem of, okay, what, what's my one next action? You know, how do we, how do I take this? So what I know I didn't sleep well, now what? Right, and, and so that's, that's the important piece that we're missing. And, and we, we sort of see that as the next evolution. You know, it, that initial wave was tracking and gathering data. The next evolution is, is insights, you know, and that, that's where I think we've, we are quite, you know, we're, we're poor on insights right now. Mm -hmm. So that, and that leads me to the question of, which you've already kind of explained is what are you doing in North star and what does North star do? So, yeah. so if I, if I try to, again, try to truncate that a little bit. So North star is building uh, an, an AI model to try to help, let's say professional teams or mm -hmm. anybody who can afford it maybe to, to, to figure out those insights on how to perform better. Yeah. Yeah. So, so obviously look, it's going to be different levels. It, the, the pro sports team are probably going to pay a little more than you and I would for, right. for something like this. Right. Um, what we're looking to do is, is take a, a snapshot uh, of that human being as a whole person right so yes it's all of the traditional physical and biomarker data that we've been collecting but then also how are we capturing the, the cognitive and the emotional parts of that equation as well and this is a problem that we haven't solved yet in sport and, and i think in in wider society because it's really hard you know in sport we often say that the game's 90 percent mental but then 100% of our interventions are physical, right? And so it, that's a, a big area that we're gonna be, be tackling with some, some of the world's best experts is how do we create 
that side of the algorithm, pull in every data stream that we can, right? So it's all the team's data. It's, it's all the, the agent's data, the scouts, the, their own wearables, make it athlete centered where they control that data and who has access to it. And then give the athlete the information on how, how are their behaviors impacting their performance? And so maybe it's, you know, as, as we do this, you make yourself more, um, more likely to get injured, right? And so go do this. Or if you do this, this is what drives your peak performance. So that, that's the other side. We tend to be quite negatively focused on injury mm-hmm. and, and down-regulating to avoid injury as opposed to up-regulating to drive peak performance, which mm-hmm. is what we all want, right? Like we don't right. just want to sit on the couch so we don't hurt ourselves. The athlete doesn't want to, like if we stop everyone playing sport, no one will ever get hurt again. Like, well, it's perfect. not from sport, right. But that's not, <laughs> yeah, but that's not the point. Right. right. The point is that we, we want to watch great athletes do incredible things. And so that's what that's what we're about is how do we take all of this data and optimize that athlete? Right. And bring it all in and make sure the athlete has the best care, the best insight that, that they know and they can own their actions and, and guide their own self through this performance journey um, in, in such a way that we're really maximizing this data because the, the quickest way to lose somebody when you're asking them to wear wearable after wearable after wearable is to not give them anything from it. Mm-hmm. Right. If we just collect these, these massive databases, do all this work and so you what? get nothing out of it. Yeah. So what? Yeah. Right. Like we wear this every day and nothing ever changes. So that that's, that's what we're aiming for. It, and it's a problem that hasn't been solved yet in sport and, I've been trying to solve it within the team environment for, for so long and have built enough experience where I can go in and look at this data and put it all together and pick out those threads. But as I said, now we want to start taking that out to more and more people. But then, yes, you start at the top with the pros, but we also want to democratize it down through, you know, making technologies available to high schools and to, to little leagues and to me and you that previously the pros have only had access to because it costs half a million bucks to go and get a full 3D biomechanical analysis. Right. Well, what if we can take it and put it in your phone, right? And you just, you point your phone and, and it does a scan. What if you could have it in your, in your webcam here mm-hmm. that could say, hey, you know, sit up. Yeah, you know, so that's, that's a problem, mechanical problem I always have. So yeah, it, it, and, but it, it's everyone, and so that's that's the other the other areas that there's. Think about all the um, military operators who yeah. are out doing this. You know, we that's a human system that we we need to optimize. Yeah, think about all the industrial athletes. You know, people climbing utility poles, people like getting in and out of of UPS trucks. That same right leg hitting the ground every time. You know, if we can now start taking this into into these other environments we're not now just in investing in the one athlete the one professional fancy sports team mm-hmm. now it starts improving the whole human operating system right and, and so that's that's where we're trying to go with this is yes starts at the top but then really democratize all the way down so we improve that experience for all of us as we interact with our own data so you had mentioned um in you know, I, I say this, I've heard 
people say talking about you know sports being 90% mental and you're trying to track all these things mm. do you have or are you working on um, a methodology to collect these qualitative kind of yeah. information because I think that is the as far as like the field of psychology goes that's part of why um we still label it as a very young field yeah. because getting data like hard data on this correlates to how somebody feels aside from let's stick them in an fmri and you know show them pictures and like yeah. there's kind of crude ways to go about it but like you're not sticking every athlete in fmri every single day and you know just having that pretty apart practice so do yeah. you have a methodology where you're, you're trying to collect that kind of information yeah we do um you know look we've, we've not solved that problem mm -hmm. Let, let's get one thing straight this is right. a very very complex problem yeah this, this is not something that's overnight but someone's got to start right and so that's where we're pulling in the world's leading experts who know how to do this through survey data um we're, we're looking at some unbelievable technologies where you can passively collect this data through maybe uh, facial recognition or there are there many of these signals in the in the voice right and so how do we collect this data simply by you know maybe you, you speak into your app mm -hmm. and it can it can rate your levels of, of anger and stress and and all these different things so we're, we're currently trialing a lot of technologies in in these areas um it's just fascinating stuff and, and really groundbreaking and so if we can start capturing some of that objective side of this um through these passive signals that we give um through our bodies then i think we can get some of the weight to to solve in some of these problems i think that's a novel and pretty interesting approach um again because like the the you know the traditional way like surveys you know how do you feel you know rate of perceived exertion like they get you in the ballpark but obviously you don't get the minutiae you really like if you really want to be data driven to make decisions so yeah adding those extra layers of models, I think I'll, I'll be interested to see how you guys do and, you know, how that progresses yeah. for sure. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeremy, uh, as we're running down on time, um, each season of the show, I come up with a question. I ask every single guest for that season. Right. So I'll ask you uh, this season's question. And this is something I don't think people do enough of, but hopefully given that you've been so, you know, in so many sports, you've got a good practice and maybe you've seen lots of good practice in this. And the question for this year is how do you celebrate your wins? Oh yeah. I'm really bad at this. Um, <laughs> that that's the journey I'm on right now. Another part of, of leaving sport, because the problem is in sport, there's always a new Everest. Mm-hmm. Right. There's always something else like, yeah, we've great. We've done this. I'll be so happy when we do this. Right? And you do that. And the, but there's always another challenge. Right. Mm -hmm. And it and, and it's such a it's a high performance culture. And the, the tendency for us all is just to, to search for problems to solve. And, and one of the things I've tried to build into my life is less external validation less other people telling you great job 
other people saying, wow, you've got a cool job, this, that, and the other. More internal validation where this was my goal. I achieved it. Um, and, and experiencing that joy internally. It's, um, it is not something that comes naturally to me, but it is something that I am actively working on. And I, I think that the first part of it for me was recognizing that internal versus external validation. And so I, that would be my advice to anybody now is, is that it, it doesn't matter what, what that external source is. It will never be able to provide you with enough where you actually believe it. You, you have to have your own checks of what success and failure look like. Um, and, and let that guide you versus letting the, the outside world, because then you're, you're like a flag blown in the wind, right? You can be much more sort of value oriented, much more, um, much more guided by your own internal experience. If you're responsible for it, then, then if you just, you know, trying to make everyone happy and get a pat on the back and this and that. So that's it for me. It's a solid answer. Um, Jeremy, if people want to catch up with you, see what you're up to, any of that kind of stuff, where can they find you? Yeah, usually uh, LinkedIn's probably the best place. Um, if you want to see a picture of my cat, then uh, you can find me on, on Instagram, uh, Jez Bertel, or, you know, I, I'm somewhat active on, on Twitter, not particularly. Um, I, I do like to, to keep a low profile, so I'll be in the background a little bit. <laughs> That's yeah, fair. I, I mean, get, given your job, you're not, you know, you're not one of the players on the field that's, you know, got this public profile all the time. So yeah. it makes sense yeah. that you might, might be a little more, you know, out, out of the way, but yeah. Um, I think you got a lot of good insights to share. So I always want to, you know, let people know where they can reach out if they'd like to. So yeah. LinkedIn's best. Awesome. Um, so uh, if you're on YouTube, that'll be on the screen. Uh, otherwise, down in the description on whatever platform you're on, you can find Jeremy on his LinkedIn. That'll be, again, in the description. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for hanging out today. Just thanks a lot for having me on, mate. Really enjoyed it.